Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. Today we have a very special show about compassionate lawyering, and we have on four people who I know well and whom I respect, Corey Brinson, Chris Poulos, Bob Herbst, and my old friend George Ritz. We define compassionate lawyering as giving something more than just a case solution to our clients. That is, these four people discuss putting in that extra mile and helping make their clients find a better, more productive way of life at the end of their issues. It's a uh, important show. If you are a lawyer, you know a lawyer, and most importantly, if you hire a lawyer. So coming right up, Compassionate Lawyering on White Collar Week. I hope you'll stay with us. So let's get started. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer. So I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Good evening. Welcome to White Collar Week. We have a great podcast tonight. We have four incredible attorneys um, who have um, have paths that are strikingly different, but all have practiced from their heart, have in- incredible stories of, um, of how they came to where they are right now. Um, some uh, tearjerkers in there, some some beautiful work they're all doing. Um, we're going to let them each introduce themselves. We have, uh, in alphabetical order, we have um, Corey Brinson, who's in Connecticut. We have uh, Bob Herbst, who's in New York. We have George Ritz, who's in Connecticut. We have Chris Poulos, who's in Washington State. So uh, what I'd like to do is um, give each of them about four or five minutes to introduce themselves, tell part of their stories, and then we'll, uh, we'll start the conversation. So, uh, Corey, uh, let's start with you. Sure. Good, uh, good evening, everybody. So, I'm Corey Brinson. I'm from uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, hopefully I'm the youngest one on the call, and so <laughs> I should have the shortest story. <laughs> so... Um, I uh, went to UConn, UConn Law School, always wanted to be a lawyer uh, growing up, ended up um, doing well and getting a job at the largest law firm in the state of Connecticut. Did that for uh, three years, then went off to Washington, D.C. and uh, worked at a national law firm for a year. I came back to Connecticut, uh, this was about 2009, and ran for Connecticut Secretary of the State. I did not win, but as a spinoff of needing the autonomy to run for office, I ended up opening my own law firm. And so my law firm primarily did um, criminal uh, state court defense. I did some um, federal criminal work, um, some personal injury, and also employment law, which I did at the big firms. Uh, throughout that, I did that for seven years, had about 700 clients, about 400 in criminal courts, got several not guilties uh, for clients, and life was going well until one day 
the IRS criminal investigations knocked at my door and they had some questions about my relationship with a client who had about $4 million um, and client proceeds from a stock fraud scheme coming to my IOTA account. So because I only have a few minutes, I'll just let you know, I ended up spending 16 months in a federal prison camp, lost my license, was the worst experience uh, ever because it was my childhood dream. And um, a lot of, you know, regrets and shoulda, coulda, wouldas and all that kind of stuff I went through. But I decided I wouldn't give up. And so when I came home in 2018, uh, first thing I did was run for Hartford City Council. That's the sign you see behind me. I didn't win, but I wanted everybody to know that I was still alive and I wasn't dead and I wasn't going away. And I ended up opening my own consulting firm called the Second Chance Firm, where I do uh, federal prison consulting based on my experience. I also am allowed to do a bar application for people in Connecticut, even though my license is suspended. And then um, I decided uh, to also become a lobbyist and do criminal justice lobbying reform. That ended up leading to me getting a job at the Legal Action Center, which is a not-for-profit law firm in New York City, where I work at today doing criminal justice reform in the state of uh, New York. So I'm essentially a lobbyist in New York uh, dealing with uh, criminal justice reform, for example, like uh, clean slate legislation, which is like automatic pardons for people in Connecticut. And so that's a great opportunity. And I decided also to go back to law school and because I missed the law so much. So I'm working on a master's in, uh, of law, an LLM in human rights and social justice from UConn Law School. And God willing, um, if all goes well, uh, my lawyer's putting in a motion so my probation can be terminated this summer. If so, I will be allowed to apply for reinstatement next year and hopefully pick up as a better man, lawyer, and person because of the experience. So that's my that's my uh, bio in five minutes. Thank you, Corey. It's wonderful, you know, that uh, uh, we share a lot of the similar pieces to our story. And Corey is a uh, member of our white collar support group that meets on Monday nights. So uh, I see him on these uh, pod. I see him on the Zoom screen a lot. George, uh, one of my oldest friends. You're next. Uh, my name is George Ritz, and Jeff is right that I live in Connecticut, but I actually work in New York. Sorry. Uh, after 30 years, well, maybe almost 40, over 40 years in practice, I finally listened to my wife and got admitted in Connecticut, where I was the oldest person in, in the, admitted to the bar in my group. Um, my first contact with the criminal justice system was when I was working for the public defender's office, wrote a bunch of briefs while I was in law school and visited with a young man on death row in Trenton State Prison, and I was amazed how young he was and how scared he was. Um, I, didn't do, I did mostly civil law. Well, actually, I clerked for a federal judge and saw a lot of criminal cases there, uh, but I began to do civil law and do uh, pro bono work on the side. My first job uh, in a criminal uh, element was as a, a federal independent counsel prosecutor where 
we prosecuted uh, one of uh, President Reagan's aides, and I was really amazed we got a guilty victory, a guilty verdict. But um, at the end of the trial, the judge sentenced this fellow to community service, which was fine with us as prosecutors. But, um, you know, it was very scary and sad to see the family gather around him and uh, to see him, you know, shamed. Although I learned later that he had really been rehabilitated significantly by his experience. Um, the next experience I had was, uh, I'll skip forward and go to the work I did with Jeff, uh, representing uh, an innocent spouse of a fellow who was put in jail for the what was then the largest Ponzi scheme in Connecticut state history. And um, I, I don't know if Jeff's going to like me telling the story because I'm not sure he wants it publicized, but um, I was amazed. This woman lived in a $4.5 million house in New Canaan, beautiful house. She was barely spoke English. She had two very young children, something like four and seven. And she managed to get the children on public assistance so that they could um, get uh, Connecticut state insurance. But the fuel allowance rent would run out in about the fourth or fifth day of the month sometimes for this huge house. And uh, Jeff actually took this woman and her kids, into Jeff and his wife took them into his house to keep them warm and from getting the flu in, in a one, one December. I'll never forget that. But that is a, a, that's compassion administering. Um, but we, we pulled together all sorts of things. We had to do real estate work. The, this woman's entire assets had been seized by the federal government. They were really vicious. The, uh, the, the, the assets were seized by Bernard Madoff's former, uh, the law firm that seized all of his assets. And they treated this guy like, and, and his wife and his children, like they were Bernie Madoff, which he was not. But they even had tied up her and claimed the right to her. Um, I've forgotten the, the title, but it's called Quintantana. It's like the gifts that you get in, a, in Spanish countries where um, on your 15th birthday, it's like a sweet 16 party, yeah. but, but it's a 15 party. And they had seized you know, all of her assets, and we managed to get all of the assets back, and her, her share of them anyway, half, which is, which is generally what, what uh, parties get in a divorce. And so uh, Jeff and I and others have arranged all sorts of legal services for these spouses of white-collar criminals who have, um, some went to jail, some didn't. The next one we did was a, um, a woman whose husband was a, a Naval Academy graduate, and he, it was a marginal case, I think. I don't know much about the criminal case, but he had two young children. He and his wife had two young children, and um, he decided to plead guilty because the, the, the sentences for white-collar criminals in Connecticut, if you were found guilty, were huge, and he didn't want his kids to grow up without a father. And so they, um, he pleaded guilty. He served a year and a half or something like that and um, had a, did a really good job of rehabilitation. And uh, they moved to California, and all is well. We had arranged tax issues for them. We arranged uh, uh, this, the uh, sale of not only their house, over many the course of many years, and the U.S. Attorney's Office was very patient with them, um, partly because, um, you know, it was always a conversation between me and the U.S. Attorney never involving the defendant. The defendant was somebody whose name seldom appeared 
you know, in our discussions, it was all about the wife and kids, which was really what the issue was about. The husband mm -hmm. was in jail at the time and he was, you know, was ready to go. So we've done a number of other cases like that, but um, those are two that really stand out for me. Thank you, George. Just to be clear, um, Lynn and I, my wife, we, we ministered to them and we help uh, on the spiritual side and George did masterful lawyering for all of them. So thank you for that, George. I, um, these people's lives would be substantially different if you, if you hadn't come along. So thank you. Well, it's um, been, it's been, uh, let's just say one more thing. It has been a transition for me because I've always wanted to do criminal work and I've sat next to some very cynical criminal lawyers, but, um, you don't have to do it that way. And I think that's partly the theme of this. I, sure. I've started representing people in um, felony cases in Westchester, and part of the deal is to is to make sure that they don't come back again, mm -hmm. and that they're the, the things that cause them to get in the kind of trouble that cause them to be charged with felonies don't happen again, and that's really important. So it's a it's really ministering to the whole people as a as a lawyer. Mm. Yep. Thanks, George. Bob. Yes, sir. Well. Um, <clears throat> I've known George Ritz for about uh, 50 years. <laughs> uh, first met him in 1965 uh, when we ended up at the same college in New Jersey. And uh, uh, at Corey, I've never met you, but I was fascinated by your story because the word resilience came to mind when I heard what you had to say. Thank you. And and that is a quality that I found over the years in both criminal cases and civil rights cases to be a very critical component in terms of determining who can withstand uh, what befalls them, either in the criminal process or being victimized uh, uh, by discrimination right. in, uh, in discrimination cases or uh, being unlawfully fired and whistleblowing cases or being abused or falsely arrested by the police in police misconduct cases. <clears throat> and, um, and so I, you know, I, I, my hat is off to you for how you've, how you've handled it. Well, thank I, you. uh, uh, grew up on Long Island and after college and law school, I went to Chicago to clerk for a federal judge. My, uh, fork in the road, uh, uh, came when I decided whether or not to be a lawyer or a journalist. Having uh, been on the college paper in, in college, I was thinking seriously about that. But uh, and and my mother always told me that the pen is mightier than the sword. But I had the misfortune to go to college in the late '60s <laughs> when uh, uh, we had the war in court, and and people uh, believed that you could make social change through litigation. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went to law school and, and I tried to, you know, my path is essentially uh, uh, in trying to do that. And, and it hasn't turned out to be an easy path because shortly after we graduated from law school in the early 70s, <coughs> uh, the Republicans became ascendant in, uh, on the federal judiciary. And as, as they did in, in the politics of the country, and usually the judiciary follows the politics of the country. And, uh, and 
the it's been a tougher and tougher road uh, decade after decade after decade and with 200 new <laughs> uh, Federalist Society uh, judges appointed by uh, the Trump administration uh, I'm glad that I am uh, uh, at the tail end of my career let's say as opposed to beginning because it's going to be difficult but, uh, but I served uh, after my clerkship uh, six years as a federal prosecutor and then after a short stint in private practice in White Plains, um, I went back into prosecution as an executive assistant district attorney in Brooklyn for a couple of years. And then in 1983, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I went into private practice and I've been in private practice ever since. Uh, I have always uh, done criminal defense work. Uh, but uh, as the years went on, most of my practice became civil rights and employment discrimination and whistleblowers, representing whistleblowers. And that's what I've done primarily over the, over the, the last uh, 30, 35 years. Um, but I must say that uh, my years of prosecution never, never uh, left the appeal of that job because one can be a compassionate prosecutor and do justice. And since prosecutors have run this, run the system uh, uh, for the last uh, 40, 50 years, uh, and their discretion often, often more important than the discretion exercised by judges in both the state and federal systems, uh, having compassionate prosecutors uh, uh, has has been important. And in the last decade, I've taken on, I've become a, a part-time prosecutor again in the International Criminal Tribunals uh, of Sierra Leone and Rwanda. And, um, and that's been a, uh, those, especially the Sierra Leone uh, case where I handled the contempt obstruction of justice prosecution and uh, tried the case for five weeks in uh, Rwanda and Sierra Leone by video link, was, uh, was a peak professional experience. I got, I got a chance to, to work in a system utterly different than the American judicial uh, system. Uh, so that's, uh, that's essentially my story, and we're happy to get into a conversation after we hear from Chris. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. All right, so Chris, from our... Uh from our left coast, uh, your turn. I'm the only one wearing a t-shirt, so I guess the left coast has grown on me here. I would have been in a suit a couple of years ago, probably sitting even though I am in my dining room of the house due to COVID-19. We're all working remotely right now in, in my office. Uh, Jeff, thank you for for inviting me. I always wonder, I've been friends with Jeff on Facebook for years, and I said, I wonder if he'll ever invite me on his show. So it, it, it has now happened. And uh, it's really great to hear from the other, the other guests here, what fascinating backgrounds you all have. Uh, so for, for the listeners, again, my name is Chris Poulos, and my current role is Executive Director of Governor Jay Inslee's Statewide Reentry Council here in Washington State. So what we do is we advise the governor and the state legislature on uh, best practices and policies and laws related to what happens inside uh, prison and jails as it relates to 
promoting or harming successful reentry, and then the transition process as well as uh, what happens after people are released, uh, addressing collateral consequences, uh, different kinds of barriers to housing, employment, licensure, things that I think everyone here on in this uh, group is familiar with in one way or another. Um, I'm formerly incarcerated myself. Uh, I have a funny story related to that that's actually, I think, perfect for this show. So I found myself, uh, after spending some time at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, New York, uh, eventually first going behind the wall at USP Lewisburg and then going to the camp after that at USP Lewisburg. And there was a... Uh, the education director there was retiring and I said that I'd like to work in the education department. I have asthma. They put me in landscaping and so I'm breathing in all these, you know, gas and grass and everything else. It wasn't going well. So I, I pleaded with the director of education. I don't know what his title was, something like that, uh, to let me work as a, as a tutor at the prison camp. And he asked if I had finished college. I guess you had to have a four-year degree at this particular institution, or maybe that's a BOP policy in order to uh, teach or work as a tutor. And I told him I'd done some college, but I hadn't. And sure enough, the, the transfer did not come from landscaping into the education department. And I happened to see him walking out. He was retiring after a, maybe a 30 or 40-year career with the BOP. And I saw him walking out with his box from his office of all his belongings. And uh, I said, I, I, you know, I thought, should I even say anything to this guy who, who wouldn't transfer me? And I, so the compassion, I guess, entered my heart. And I said, you know, I just wanted to say thank you for all the work you did helping people learn and get their GEDs and stuff like that. And he turned around, he looked at me and he said, didn't you want to work in the education department? And I said, yeah. And he, and he said, well, I was going to get you in there as an orderly, someone who could clean the uh, floors and stuff like that. He said, but I just had one of my teachers quit. How would you like to be one of our uh, teachers in the education department? <laughs> and of course, I wasn't going to resurface the college diploma <laughs> issue, right? You know, that's, that's, their, that's their department, not mine. And so sure enough, that, that kind of issue just disappeared and they reassigned me to becoming a teacher. And I was able to spend three years or close to three years at Lewisburg um, teaching English language learners and uh, basically every subject for the high school GED. And that's how I sustained myself as well. You know, we had our regular paycheck, but a lot of people incarcerated do something on the side. And so I had to do private lessons for people for uh, in exchange for home i put that in quotes cooking and other different benefits that we kept so i wasn't so reliant on my family and friends on the outside to send me uh, money so uh, one of the other tutors said to me uh, you work in uh, the education department you must be one of those white collar criminals right you must be a white collar criminal like the rest of us here and i said actually white powder not white collar <laughs> So my uh, my incarceration was a result of a, a multiple year, a, a decade long addiction to various substances that mm -hmm. actually began in my early teens. And I experienced a lot of trauma as a youth, uh, experienced homelessness as a youth. And after I came home from federal prison, 
I, uh, I, I guess it became, I became committed to becoming a lawyer even before I went to federal prison when I saw uh, the way it connections, race, money, different things, different factors can impact outcomes and representation in the system. And so I was sitting in jail and when I was sitting in county jail, I became committed to someday becoming an attorney. Uh, and so I eventually did and uh, went to college, went to law school, uh, got past an initially reluctant dean, uh, found my way into the Obama White House during my third year of law school, working at the Office of National Drug Control Policy under Michael Botticelli there. And that experience actually changed my trajectory from uh, being entirely committed to representing individual clients on a one-by-one basis to working at the policy level. And uh, that's how I eventually found myself in now state government as an appointee. Um, also teaching law now, something that I never thought possible. I started as a GED teacher at Lewisburg, and uh, now I'm an adjunct professor of law at Seattle University School of Law, Jesuit Law School, actually, Jeff. Uh, so that's what I'm up to these days. And if you hear noise in the background, that might be my, uh, my German shepherd, who's still kind of a puppy, but we'll, we'll do our best to mute if that happens. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Chris. You know, when I, when I hear the uh, word Lewisburg, uh, because I was in the, uh, low at Allenwood just up the road. And so that little corner of the world between say, um, Southside Williamsport has, uh, probably a dozen prisons between state and federal. And um, so uh, everyone who comes to visit there is either going to visit someone at the college or someone at a prison. So it's, uh, so all of our, uh, all of our visitors uh, got to meet a nice cross section of people at the local Bennigan's or whatever. <laughs> well, thank goodness for the Bucknell Dyson's uh, radio station. That's right. Exactly. And we put in requests, too. Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, I don't think George or uh, Bob need to be shy about having attended Princeton. So I think it's a, uh, as long as we're mentioning Bucknell, we got to mention Princeton, right? So um, the topic tonight is uh, compassionate lawyering. And we've all kind of started talking about that in all different ways already. But I think the thing that interests people who are going through the system um, uh, or one of the biggest decisions they have to make is who they choose as an attorney. And um, often they don't know who, who who they've chosen until well into their case. And there's a lot of uh, dissatisfaction. Um, these people are on the edge in, in trauma, going through all kinds of, uh, of issues. And then um, they find out what kind of lawyer they have. And some of the lawyers are mechanics. They take them through sentencing and they, they do a great job or they don't. Uh, but there's uh, other kinds of lawyering out there for people who um, embrace more of a holistic kind of experience and who want to um, help their clients um, do better in life. And the relationships often extend far beyond that of sentencing. So um, that's kind of the topic. And uh, who'd like to kick it off? Um, I know you have a, all have a lot of experience in this. Um, uh, who'd like to kick it off? George, George um, do, you, do you want to talk a little bit about your the, your spiritual, um, how you spend your spirit life, and and how that um, how that connects with your lawyering? 
Well, the first thing I'd like to do is contradict my old friend, Bob Herbst. A uh, couple things I that, that I, was coming. I totally agree with is what he said about prosecutors. I have a daughter who's been a lawyer now for two years, and I have been trying to convince her to become a prosecutor, and she will not. She wants to be a defense lawyer. And I keep telling her that I've now met a whole bunch of prosecutors who have been really great people, and they have done more for my clients than I ever could have done. Mm. And that compassionate prosecution is a, a real art. Mm -hmm. And um, I've really come across some people who are really good at it and really bad at it. The second thing, though, I'd like to really contradict him on is that he said he was uh, at the end of his, the tail end of his career. Well, the judge I clerked for uh, was um, 99 when he retired, and he died when he was about 99 and a half. So I've decided, and I know you have too, Bob, that retirement is very bad for your health. So I intend to practice law for a long time. In fact, I'm practicing law now in a firm that was started by the son, the 84-year-old son of the judge I clerked for 47 years ago. And uh, he said, I'm, I'm uh, getting too old to practice anymore, but maybe you're not. So why don't you meet the best law student that in my class who's now the head of my firm? And I did, and so I'm still here. You know, George, <laughs> I felt that way up until February and March of this year. Mm. You know, I tried a case, uh, a whistleblower case three years ago, <clears throat> which I got into six weeks before trial because the, the lawyers who worked the case up for five years and represented this whistleblower <clears throat> really had, didn't have the requisite jury trial experience. And the, the lawyer that they had retained out in California to, to come east and try the case in, in the Southern District of New York had had the California wildfire experience and lost the, uh, it had to bow out. And, and so I, I tried to absorb this record in six weeks and tried the case for three weeks. <laughs> and I nearly died doing that. But had I had to have tried that case in the post-COVID environment, wearing masks, <laughs> or coming coming from Larchmont, New York, into into the into Manhattan on public transportation of some sort, and then going up and and sitting in a courtroom with people who probably don't want to be there, you know, because of, uh, social distancing is going to be very difficult. It's 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 going to be. I'm I'm not sure that I'm I'm going to last till ninety nine. I <laughs> I don't know how long I'll be, but. Um, you know, uh, there are um, the, the the problem with the lawyering is that uh, you are a warrior for your client, and it doesn't matter if it's in the criminal realm or the civil rights realm where you're prosecuting. Uh, the wrongdoers, whether they're police officers or discriminators or uh, or what have you, <laughs> and it's I think it's difficult to marry the warrior psychology personality to the compassionate lawyer, and not too many lawyers are able to integrate 
the, the those those two personality sides, and so you you uh, you're lucky to come across a lawyer who who can do that. Um, in addition to the problems of, for example, when you get a serious disease, you know, and you and you say, well, you know, what doctor am I going to going to go to for this? You don't know. It's very difficult to choose a physician without a tremendous amount of help from from people who know the field. And the same thing is true, uh, I think, about lawyers. So it, it it's a it is a difficult problem that I. Uh, you know, I uh, I don't have a lot of uh, advice on how to solve it. Um, so uh, why do you guys kind of each um, discuss what your philosophies of compassionate lawyering is, why you've perhaps taken on pro bono work, what what you've done to um, better inform yourself as someone who, who cares about people? Uh, Corey, you want to start? Yeah, I'll go. Um, so, you know, compassionate lawyering um, to me is the belief that the practice of law is uh, transcends um, just being a business. Um, and particularly uh, when you represent individuals versus corporations, and I've had the opportunity to do both. Um, you know, your people are really relying on you and the decisions that you make um, really um, can affect uh, people's lives. And just in the, like the criminal defense practice and uh, George, you're right that, you know, prosecutors I always tell my clients that I'm the as a defense lawyer, I'm the, the I have the least amount of power in the room. Uh, the judge and the prosecutor have all the power. Um, and so you're, you're right about that. You can do more. Uh, you can affect the um, criminal justice system a lot more from the prosecutor's chair than from the defense chair. But part of, you know, what your role is, you know, as a therapist, you play therapist and counselor. Um, the lawyer who trained me, you know, he, he taught me something my first year practice that, you know, we're not cheerleaders for our clients. And a lot of time is letting them understand that uh, a plea resolution, um, you know, could save them years and years. Uh, in their life um, if the trial were to go the wrong way. You know, it also means, you know, what I've done many times is when clients have run out of money and not thrown them out, out of my practice and finished up with them. But the hope that, you know, good karma and doing the right thing and um, will, uh, in the universe, will, will remember that and that the client will remember that and maybe send me a referral one day. Um, and so that's, that's also, uh, that's also part of it because it is a unique relationship. And so when I went through the criminal justice system and I had a really, really good lawyer, um, he was a former federal prosecutor. And so I, you know, as I was going through the anxiety and stress and frustration of the process, you know, I had to remind myself what it was like to be the defense lawyer, knowing that, you know, you had the least amount of power uh in the process and sometimes you know we want to uh, blame the messenger um when and oftentimes it's the system which is why the work i think that like chris does and what i'm doing now at the legal action center on a policy level is so important about like mandatory minimums and 
that type of stuff because you can't you can't I can't change a mandatory minimum um, law from the courtroom. And if a prosecutor doesn't want to come off a charge, there's nothing I can do except go to trial. And that may be even worse for my client. And so the policy stuff is so, so, so important. So um, that that's what I would say about it, that it, it's really, you know, it's it's understanding that there's a, you know, your client is a, is a human being. They have a life, a, a person, their family, and then, you know, getting them to understand the system and the expectations within the system. Um, and I'll wrap up with this. Um, one of the most troubling cases I remember was I represent a guy who had mental health issues. He had stole a car and crashed it from some two old ladies at a cemetery who were visiting dead loved ones and then crashed the car into another family having a funeral, mental health issues again. And so he was literally 18, 19, was just starting out his life, wanted to be a police officer. Um, and so when the family came to see me, they figured, well, because obviously he had been diagnosed with mental health issues, the criminal case should go away. And I said, no, that's not how it works. You either uh, go insanity and then they can keep you for 20 years or you plead guilty to this felony. And maybe they only keep you for one year, but you have a felony. And they you know, were very upset that I didn't, there wasn't a third choice. And um, so I got fired. But um, um, they ended up just literally uh, seeing two other lawyers and then wanted to come back. So, um, um, because they realized that sometimes uh, given the tough medicine is what we do as lawyers in terms of the counseling um, is important to your clients um, who have to make the tough choices. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. Uh, Chris, as long as uh, Corey brought up policy, what, what's going up on up over there in Washington? It seems like you have a lot of representation from formerly incarcerated people who've, um, who are now practicing law. You, Tara Simmons, Sean Hopwood spent a lot of time up there, apparently, um, um, certainly on Tara's case and uh, on a lot of policy issues. So um, uh, how rewarding is that? And how much do you get to actually touch people who are in the system? Sure. Great, great question. So Something I've noticed in uh, criminal justice reform, especially in the kind of larger organizations based in in D.C. and New York, is that uh, I don't know if it's surprising or not, but oftentimes there's very little representation in these organizations by people with actual lived experience. Mm -hmm. um, they they say that they want diversity, and in some you know there's various ways that diversity is. Um, represented, of course, but I've found that uh, oftentimes the criminal justice reform organizations don't don't employ, uh, and certainly don't employ in leadership positions, anybody who's actually been impacted by the, the criminal legal system. So in, in Washington, I think we're doing a bit of a better job at that than some of the, and this is not to call out any specific organization nationally, at least not today, um, that may happen in the future. But uh, in Washington, we've we've done a great job of kind of lifting each other up. It, it was from uh, Tara Simmons on Facebook, who's uh, formerly incarcerated, now a lawyer. I actually got admitted before before Tara did to the bar, 
in Maine. And, and ironically, in federal court, I got sworn into the, the federal bar in the same courthouse where I was sentenced to federal prison, which was a pretty surreal and powerful experience for me. Um, so we, we really believe in, in centering uh, the most impacted voices in this work. And, and in the words of Glenn Martin, the people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And so, you know, it's something I've been able to do is uh, everyone, there's only been a couple, two actually, people who have worked as staff um, for the statewide reentry council, but both of whom are, are women and both of whom are formerly incarcerated um, and both of whom are women of color. And I think that it's important to not just talk about equity and talk about diversity, but actually to, to put, you know, put our money where our mouths are. Uh, what I've found in some of the organizations is I feel like if you're advocating for, you know, in, endangered orcas or something, of course, you can't hire orcas, right, to come and, and do this work directly. And I feel that that's kind of like brings us back to that savior model of, of very privileged people who feel like when they're doing criminal justice reform, they're trying to save uh, this the group of people who have no voice or cannot somehow are, you know, speak for themselves. And I think in, in Washington here, we've done a pretty good job of dismantling that and, uh, you know, bringing people into leadership experiences that, A, meet all of the professional criteria. I, I think it's equally a disservice to throw someone into a role that they're not uh, qualified or prepared, prepared for just because they've, they've done time, something like that. But when we have multiple candidates who, who meet the criteria or come close to meeting the criteria, we're, we're here going to center and, and probably hire the person with the lived experience. Um, and actually, if you don't mind, I'd love to touch on your first question, too, just about the, sure. the holistic lawyering. Um, an experience I had was when I was sitting in county jail facing five federal felony charges, I uh, initially had a court-appointed attorney, and I'm from Portland, Maine originally, so I'm a Northeast guy too. And uh, I had a court-appointed attorney. We don't have public defenders in Maine. We just have people who pick up cases, lawyers. They pick up cases, um, generally incredibly under-resourced, incredibly underpaid, and many of whom you know, work their butts off but just don't have anything compared to what particularly the AUSAs have at their mm -hmm. disposal. Uh, it, so you know, I went and talked to this public defender, uh, excuse me, court-appointed attorney once. And, and uh, in the federal system, they do have uh, public defenders, even in Maine. But the resource difference was just so vast that when I went to the, the federal defender's office, they didn't even have a staff member to answer the door or the phone. I had to pound, 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 pound until finally one of the lawyers heard me and came out all razzled from how many cases he had and said, sure, I'll talk to you. I can come on in. Sorry, we don't have anyone even staffing the office. Um, and I assure you the AUSAs uh, had a staff, to say the least. I looked at the numbers. It was two attorneys versus 20 employees for the AUSA's office, not to mention the law enforcement arms at their disposal. Um, but I had a, a court-appointed attorney, not one of the public defenders initially. 
And here I am sitting in jail and he told me, uh, there's really no point in having a pretrial detention hearing in your case because you're, you're accused of a federal drug trafficking charge and there's little to no chance you're getting out. You might as well get the, the clock ticking on your sentence now so that this jail time will count. And I'm thinking, we don't even have discovery yet. We don't know what the, the scope of the evidence against me is. And this guy's already talking about, uh, you know, what my prison sentence is going to look like. I feel like we've skipped some steps here. I'm not a lawyer yet, but this doesn't feel right. And I got off the phone with him. And I knew that he, he was not in a situation where he was under-resourced and overburdened. Whatever fight he may have some, someday had in him was, was gone that day. And I felt like I was on a conveyor belt toward incarceration with different players. There's the prosecutor. There's the judge. There's my attorney. They're all just different players on this conveyor belt towards incarceration. And they have their different roles in this game uh, towards a plea bargain. And I was able to hang up the phone and hire private counsel. I was able to get together funds from family and, and advocacy from friends to convince my family to help that happen. And I don't even know what they had for uh, dinner in jail that night because as soon as I hired a, an attorney for a lot of money, within hours I was released. And what happened was the attorney did some holistic lawyering. He called up the AUSA. He said, look, my client is already in recovery from addiction. He's got a job in the community. He has strong family ties. He has no resources to run. He's not going to flee. Why not let him out into the community to work on his addiction recovery to keep saving money? And then if he has to go to prison, he will. He'll self-report or you can bring him in at sentencing. And the AUSA said, yes, sounds good. And I went home. And that was the difference. It went from uh, no, 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 no reason to have a detention hearing because it's bound to fail to not needing a hearing because the AUSA was in agreement. And that's the power of, uh, you know, an experience, not just an experienced attorney, but an attorney who can present all the factors in the case. And that goes right from pre-trial to, to post-sentencing relief and everything in between. Let me give you the flip side of, of that uh, in terms of compassionate lawyering <clears throat> that, that I had uh, in, in, a, in a recent case that started about probably six, seven years ago when the client uh, got a letter from a federal uh, prosecutor in Washington, not Washington State, Washington, D.C., informing him that he was a person of interest and and would he like to come in and talk and uh when it was a it was a large fraud scheme uh in which uh, everybody involved there were probably 20 30 people involved in the in the in the operation uh of this so let's just call it a boiler room of sorts uh would make um uh statements that are you know, sort of uh, crossing the line between um, outright falsity and puffing, which is often the case in federal 
in a certain class of boiler room, either consumer fraud or securities fraud uh, cases. And he was outraged by getting this letter. He said, I, 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 was, there ten, I was there 10 years. Uh, I didn't do anything wrong. We told people exactly what the, what the situation was and, and so forth and so on. It took me uh, about two months of solid consultations after learning all the facts uh, to persuade him that, number one, he had done something that the prosecutor, the court, and a jury would likely believe was wrong. And two, that the better, far better course for him would be to come in and be one of the first cooperators in the case. And long story short, five years, four or five years after that, when he testified at the trial in which five or six of the, of the defendants were still uh, contesting the charges. Um, they were all convicted, um, went to jail uh, for actually a reasonable period of time, not that long a period of time. And he and a few of the others that cooperated uh, didn't have to, didn't have to uh, endure a custodial sentence. So, the, sometimes the most compassionate thing that one can do is confront the client and make sure that the client, um, who doesn't really understand uh, uh, at the beginning what the real path is going to be and what, what the realities are, um, to, to make him understand what he has to do in order to uh, come out well. well one of the things you know, we do. There, one, go ahead. Sorry. One of the things we do in the ministry is we help people through their trauma and their denial. Because as we all know, the the trauma is huge, and people are 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 making decisions that affect themselves and their families. And um, it's not just that they're that they're underinformed or ill-informed. They they can't process the information, and yet they have to make life-altering decisions in the moment. So um, I, I can understand why the story that you told or, or uh, that Corey told earlier, where people are in disbelief, and that's something that a lawyer has to work through. I want to tell a story about a cooperator. Um, I was involved in one case in front of one of the toughest federal judges in New York, and I represented nine anesthesiologists who had been charged with um, Medicare fraud. And the head of their, not a single one of them was born in the United States. Mm. The head of their practice, who was born in the United States, who was the only equity partner in this partnership, alleged partnership of uh, people who had, uh, who were sa actually salaried employees of his, um, went in and ratted on, on his own system. And the prosecutors gave him immunity and then went after my clients. Fortunately, the guy decided to leave the, the, the system before, uh, you know, we, I guess we ran the clock out on him, but 
he, he moved to disqualify me. I brought in a former head of the U.S. Attorney's Office in a different district to represent half of my group that he claimed I was disqualified from representing. But, you know, the, the system of cooperating can really uh, wreak havoc on, on uh, the defendants because uh, sometimes the cooperators are the, the real evildoers. That, that was certainly the case in this, in this situation. Um, what, what, what's your, all of you guys, not only are you lawyers, but you all kind of have side hustles. You know, you're, uh, you're doing work in the community, uh, spirituality, uh, religion, volunteerism. So what are you doing out there in addition to, um, your main profession and, and how does that, um, how does that inform your work and how, and, um, how do you, how do you think it, helps you help your clients to become better citizens? Well, I'll start with a short story. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to college. Um, my None of my three little brothers um, graduated from college, and two of them died of alcohol-related problems, mm -hmm. one in a car accident, which he and the other driver had been drinking, mm -hmm. and another... Uh, of AIDS. And um, that really taught me a lot about what victims of alcoholism and, and, and drug addiction go through. I have another cousin who is my first cousin, lived five miles away. He was uh, identified by his younger brother by his teeth because he died. He came back from Vietnam as a heroin addict and died um, on, um, in a lot in Harlem. And uh, yesterday, um, I was called by a friend who is a former uh, police officer who has really sent me a number of cases to go and meet with a 14-year-old who had been, um, who had, couldn't drive. So he rode his uh, skateboard over the train station, threw up all over the platform, and um, was taken off the train by a bunch of cops who did what they do in the old days. They took him home to his parents instead of uh, putting him in jail. And, um, you know, I don't know if this kid's going to make it or not. We'll see. But, um, you know, there, there are, we live in the real world and we live, you know, with all sorts of people and all sorts of families. And that, you know, affects, I think, and informs all of us. We're, uh, every lawyer is not a person who comes from, you know, 10 generations of lawyers. That's true. Uh, I think... Um, I I used to be a member of a liberal congregation in Manhattan before we lived, moved up here to, to uh, Westchester. <clears throat> and I served a stint as, uh, as uh, co-chair of, uh, of the Social Action Committee of the congregation, which, and so for, for a good number of years, we ran a, uh, a homeless shelter in the basement of the congregation. A, uh, a lunch lunch program on uh, on every Wednesday lunch, uh, and uh, um, I'm having a senior moment now. But a you know when for for people who were uh, seeking asylum from Central American uh, oppression, you know in, in Honduras and El Salvador, Guatemala. Uh, we had a program for, for them. Um, 
it didn't really affect my lawyering. I have to confess, it was it was sort of a separate uh, operation, and I I uh, maybe it maybe it had something to do with um, with some of the approaches to some of the cases that I had, but I can't really put my finger on it. Mm. Corey, Chris. Somebody <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. Okay. So uh, some of the things I do outside of uh, my formal job with the state is uh, I do some volunteering work. I do some sponsorship type stuff. I'm in a 12-step recovery program still. And one interesting thing that happened is I once had a lawyer and uh, to protect their anonymity, I won't give the details of the case, but I had a lawyer that I was uh, connected with. And the fact that I was open about my own recovery and my own background actually inspired this attorney to return to a 12-step program that he had had a resentment against for about a decade. And he uh, went to a meeting, a 12-step recovery meeting with me for the first time in, in 12 years or something like that, maybe 10 years, I don't know, longer. Uh, he simply stopped going due to an unresolved resentment with another person in the group. And instead of going to a different group, he quit going altogether, uh, which is not unsurprising. And so that's, that's one of the things that I continue to do. And it's really interesting. Uh, when I was in law school, the dean of admissions, a, a lawyer who I was working for at the time, uh, kind of as a, I guess, clerk or assistant, something, I was doing all sorts of things for him. Uh, and he, he and, and the uh, dean of admissions both urged me to be quiet about my federal conviction. They said, if you want to get involved in some policy work and maybe share that you're in recovery from addiction, that's one thing. But you don't have a lot of press on your conviction. It was not a, a high profile case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could probably, you don't need to let your past define you in the future. You can just be Chris, the lawyer. And I thought, you know, that's great. I don't need to have my, my background be part of every analysis when I'm involved in every different decision. It's not really relevant, right, to what's happening in the instant case or to my law school colleagues. So for my first two years of law school, I was completely quiet about my background. I wanted my work as a law student to stand on its own. I didn't have to be the guy who went from federal prison to law school. And, you know, I'm glad I did that then. I'm glad I let my work stand on its own and, and got different accomplishments and stuff in law school without my past ever coming into it. But then I met uh, Michael Botticelli from the Obama White House, and he came into this uh, meeting in, in Portland, Maine, where I was uh, part of uh, the mayor's meeting on substance use disorder and addiction recovery. And he shared that he uh, was himself in recovery from addiction and actually been arrested for drunk driving and gone to jail for it, although he was quickly released and diverted um, away from it and had been in recovery ever since, something like 30 years. But I thought, well, this guy's open about the fact that he's been arrested. This guy's open about the fact that he's in recovery from addiction. 
he seems to be doing okay professionally. He's the director of national drug control policy for the president of the United States. And at that point, I decided to become open and basically, you know, come out of the closet about my criminal record and started talking about it publicly and addiction too. And maybe even more importantly, the addiction part, because then lawyers came to me, law students came to me, everyday people came to me. And my messages on Facebook are just flooded to this day. My son just got arrested. I don't know if he's going to make it. And that helps uh, other people, but it also helps me stay sober. And it helps me uh, stay grounded and remember why I do the work that I do, both in my uh, career as well as my work outside of uh, my formal job. I had a very similar experience in seminary. So I went to seminary, I think, 28 years after I graduated law school. And my first year, uh, I made the same decision. I didn't want to be defined as someone who had been to uh, prison or someone who had committed a white-collar crime or someone who had been disbarred. And um, I wanted my work to stand for me. But I was living, for me, inauthentically. And I knew it. And it was tearing me apart. And um, I was kind of know um dragging my tush in there and one day i was like had my head down and i and i was full of shame and i hadn't really felt that kind of shame in a while and this guy who was sitting in the in the cafeteria who was a i was a first year he was a uh he was a third year so he was about to graduate he uh he called me over he said what's the matter and by the way, in seminaries, people do that. They don't do that so much in law schools. And, um, and, uh, and he said, what's the matter? And I said, um, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm getting too much out of this experience. And he, said, and he looked right at me and he said, you know, instead of trying to get something out of it, do you think that you might want to try putting something into it? And I said, and it was like, I've heard that in recovery every day in recovery, but I couldn't apply it to what was going on in the seminary. And it was a light bulb went off. And at that point, I just knew I had to disclose and I had to be authentic to who I was. And that's marked my path ever since. So I completely relate to that, Chris. Thank you. I can, I can relate too, because this comes up in a, uh, in, in whistleblower cases and discrimination cases, uh, against uh, corporations where the plaintiff let's take a whistleblower case <laughs> i have a case where um where the client uh was fired years ago for whistleblowing uh brought a lawsuit couldn't find alternate employment and at first he didn't mention the uh the fact, you know, what his experience was. And uh, for, for two years thereafter, three years thereafter, he didn't, didn't get a job. Didn't help that he didn't mention it. Um, then uh, he got some advice that maybe he should put it on his resume. And he did, you know, briefly. Still didn't get a job. Now, years later, there's a possibility of settling the case. And the question arises... Should he agree to be muzzled in return for the settlement payment? If that's the condition of the settlement, mm. 
And sometimes you can agree on the monetary amount that the, that's going to be paid to this to settle the case. But the question then becomes: uh, is is the is the whistleblower or the discriminator uh, willing to commit to not discussing his case again? Yeah, and that that's a tough tough issue for a lot of them. Yeah, I just want to point out um, that, Bob, I think you're incredibly humble for a guy with your resume. Because um, we just talked a couple of weeks ago on the phone about how the life of the civil rights lawyer or someone who handles whistleblower cases, you work for years basically on the principle of a case, and you don't know if you're going to get paid. It's, it, that that's true, and and that's why the human rights practice <coughs> is is not uh, not a favorite practice uh, in the profession, because um, you often uh, uh, you work for years. I I, I had a, a class action strip search case against the Nassau County Jail for their blanket strip search policy. It started. In 1999, when I first brought that action in 1999, and the case, uh, the case didn't resolve. It's and I thought we're just finishing up the administrative phase of, of the case. I didn't get paid on that case for about 16 years, mm. um, and you often you often do not you know you take on the case on a contingent fee basis. You lay you you lay out hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars worth of time. Forget about the expenses uh, because they they're often a fraction of the time, uh, and you rely generally on the fee shifting provisions of the civil rights statutes to get paid when you prevail. So if you lose, you get nothing. If you win, it's often up to the to the judge uh, whether to to cut your fee application, you know, so you don't get your, your load star, your hourly rate times all the hours you put in. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get 20% less, sometimes 30% less. And, uh, but that's the nature of the piece. If you want, you know, if you want, uh, want not to have a steady diet of corporate litigation or, you know, uh, cases where it's just about the money, um, and you want to represent victims, that's uh, sometimes the price of that kind of practice. Sure. So, so Corey, you decide you want to go into civil service. You, I, I see you all over the place doing uh, um, support rallies, things that um, are helping the uh, marginalized and oppressed. How, how, how does that inform your decision making? Yeah, um, so one, I want to tell Chris, uh, I'm also a Lewisburg alumni, so I'll see you at Union next summer. <laughs> uh, what uh, unit were you in? I was I was in Unit 1 and then over to RDAP. Okay, I was, was, there, I was Unit Was there RDAP there. there when you were there? Mm -hmm. I did RDAP at Lewisburg. Okay, yeah, yeah, so I, I, I was there. Uh, uh, with Lori Poor, Captain Whitmire, maybe were there when you were there. Um, Lori Poor was. Okay, that was yeah. my PT. So see, we're we're brothers now. <laughs> Doug Contry, Doug Contry's no longer there, right? No, uh, but Lori Lori Poor was 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 my person. So what is our debt? Say it again. 
What is our that? Oh, the, those who watching it don't know. The residential drug abuse program that allows you to earn uh, to a year off your sentence. Okay. So it's like, uh, it's a different prison experience when you do RDAP. So mm -hmm. that's a whole nother show. So to, to um, but I, I also wanted to echo Chris what you were saying about your um, um, embracing your past. And so, you know, I've realized, you know, I was given this story for, for whatever reason. And so when I went back to law school, you know, I led with my story. Hey, I'm the, the lawyer who got in trouble, who came back to law school. And I ended up getting two A's in the courses I took. And I think part of the reason was because I was very vocal about that experience and how it related to my classes. I'm doing human rights and social justice. So I can bring those experiences to the courses um, that I'm taking. And I, and I think it's in, um, it's important. And um, the students, I think, listen up a little more when I'm speaking because I can say I tried a murder case to verdict. I've got not guilty verdicts. I've done all that. And I've also been a defendant and been incarcerated. So you have a little more credibility when you're speaking. The other thing I think is important, like God willing, I get my license back and maybe I can recreate a new firm, is that I think some clients um, will be attracted to the fact that I have been through the system um and i know what they're going through and i didn't go to law school to plead them guilty um and i, and I know the anxiety and the stress and what this means to their life if if when I'm, I'm counseling them and i think that that matters to some people and i think some people you know um you know will appreciate that that lived experience um that that i have and also my policy work you know, I'm able to to speak from that lived experience um, as as well, doing the criminal justice stuff um, in New York. So I, I just kind of, you know, I, I don't want it to, I don't want like that chapter of my life to define me because I was in the military longer than I was in prison, right? So it's like, you know, um, at some point, you know, that this was just one chapter of my life. I, I kind of like analogize it to like, if someone goes through a divorce, it's a very traumatic experience. But you don't, that's not something, you know, you want to be living every day for the rest of your life. So I kind of feel like that about it. Like, this is a chapter. And at some point, I want to be known for my successes in the courtroom or, or in family um, or for the community. Um, but, yeah, I think it's important um, to be out there um, doing um, advocacy work around these issues. Um, we'd be remiss not to discuss, you know, George Floyd and the protests that are going on and Black Lives Matter um, and kind of where we are in this intersection of racial, social justice and criminal justice reform. And, I, you know, I really think, you know, uh, America can finally start to do something uh, around being the leaders of uh, uh, mass incarceration um, in the world. I'm not, and I'll, I'll close with this, I'm, I'm not afraid to speak up about my past in part because there's 23 million convicted felons in this country. If they were, we were a state, I think we'd be the size of New York. And there's uh, 70 to 80 million people who have a criminal uh, record of some sorts, even if it's not a conviction. So when you're talking about, um, it, you can't get into a group of a half a dozen people and not find someone who hasn't 
been or doesn't have an immediate family member who's been impacted by the criminal justice system. And my law school um, advisor, you know, I spoke to her about my issue and she said, you know, I had a very close family member go through that. And I know how hard it was and I know what you're going through. So anything I can do to help. And we wouldn't have had that moment had I hit that from her. Yeah. So well, wh- why don't we um, go around uh, as we're kind of wrapping up, why don't we uh, each take an opportunity to speak to uh, the audience of people who are, are interested in this kind of subject and whether they be uh, someone who's been prosecuted or somewhere within the ecosystem and what's the takeaway you'd like them to have about the topic um, and at the same time um, say um, how you can be reached um, and uh, what kind of um, follow-up that you're, 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 you're willing to do or you would like people to contact you about. So those are two things. What are the ta- what's the takeaway and then uh, how can you be reached? And uh, George, why don't we start with you, if that's okay? Sure. Well, um, I have been amazed in doing this kind of work. I did a lot of um, litigation for, for and against big companies, but I've been amazed now that I'm in a much smaller practice and, and do, leading out of Westchester County and Fairfield County, how little individuals know about the legal system. And um, I often find myself thinking of both the innocent spouse cases and other ones where I have to say to the client, look, meters off, but let me tell you what's going on here Mm. and explain the system because they don't understand it. And a lot of lawyers really don't know how to talk to people about the legal system. They just assume that everybody knows what they know and they don't. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a question of, um, both balancing, um, you know, what you know versus what they know and and trying to get, without being too technical about it, explaining the whole system to them so they they understand. Uh, The way to reach me um, is through my website, which is uh, Ritzlaw, H-R-I-T-Z Law. George at Ritzlaw is my email address. And um, I'm here in Westchester, but I, you know, work all over in Westchester and Fairfield counties. I go into the city when I have to, but after commuting to the city for over 40 years, uh, I'm perfectly happy to be up here in an office that's 15 minutes from my home. That's great, George. Um, Bob? Well, you can, you can reach me at uh, my email address is rherbst, my last name, R for Robert, and H-E-R-B-S-T, at Herbst. Law, L-A-W-N-Y for NewYork.com, or uh, you could probably leave a, a note on uh, on my website also, which is HerbstLawNY.com. <clears throat> but what I would like to say in, in response actually to Corey's uh, suggestion, we should talk about the, um, the, uh, the welling up from below of the dissatisfaction with the racism and the classism in this country. <clears throat> I think it's a tough, it's a tough battle because the forces of reaction are strong. But this is, could be a moment like the moment in the late 60s and early 70s where we lost the battle 
this could be a watershed moment where we regain the ability to get ourselves out of the hole that we have dug for ourselves as a society in the last 50 years. Um, if we can uh, capture the White House, both houses of Congress, we might be able to make progress. Um, and that's not just on the federal level. I'm talking about the, the, the state and local level as well. If the progressive forces that are represented by the people who came out in the streets, when there was this COVID pandemic, which created a risk for everybody, if we can maintain that as we go forward the next year or two, um, there might be some hope for us because we don't have a lot of time, and not just as a national society, but as a global species, to start attacking the existential problems that beset us, like climate change, which I think is encouraging the, uh, the pandemic and the epidemics that we've experienced in the last 10, 15 years. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, that those as old as George and I, and as young as Corey and Chris, and those even younger can mobilize and keep this going. God speed blessings to everybody. Amen, brother. I remember when the politicians used to sound like you. It's uh, it'll be. Let let let's hope they come back, Corey. Amen. Yes, uh, you can reach me at Corey at secondchancefirm.com. So that's my uh, website for my uh, pardons and federal prison consultant work that I do, um, and you know that keeps me uh, connected to the community. And I also have to say I'm. Uh, not a licensed attorney, and you've been calling me that uh, throughout this evening, and I don't want to get in trouble with the bar. <laughs> I'm, I'm not either, Corey. So I'm making clear for this uh, recording that <laughs> I'm not a licensed attorney, um, and but hope to be readmitted um, hopefully as soon as next year if all goes, if all goes well. But I'm... Um, um, for, uh, I look forward to what the future uh, brings. We all go through things in life and um, that define us and learn from, and some of us grow from it, and, and some of times it, it breaks us. Um, but uh, I'm hoping, um, you know, to just to be a stronger, better person uh, because of all of this, and um, hopefully, you know. Uh, embody the, the concept of a compassionate lawyer um, and advocate uh, for for people um, at the for people uh, going through a difficult time in their life so thank you Corey so uh, Chris uh, you're our last speaker tonight and then I'll uh, say a few words and uh, we can say our goodbyes sure thank you thank you everyone so speaking on uh, the the current moment and movement 
it's been really interesting for me because I've been in the work that I do uh, both professionally and outside and all sorts of different, I'm, I'm still invited to all sorts of different community uh, organization and movement events. And I'm almost always the only person who works for the government um, in these spaces. And so it's like, I have my job, but then I have my, my identity that's uh transcends my current employment and and that's a i think a beautiful thing that i'm able to have both but just something that jumped out at me was somebody who doesn't work in in uh dismantling mass incarceration which is frankly what i'm ultimately after um and and creating a new system not reforming our criminal justice system but making some fundamental changes uh, and as they said, how, how did you go? You went out into the mountains during the middle of this, uh, crisis after George Floyd, you went out into the mountains. What are you thinking? We need to be every minute. And I said, you know, it, it reminded me of Mark Maurer from the sentencing project when I was their intern legal fellow during law school in DC. And he said, uh, what we've been doing, Mark said, who just retired as executive director of the sentencing projects, so we've been doing this for 30 years now. The cameras come and the cameras go. And we need to, you know, do what we need to do to take care of ourselves through all of this. It's an ongoing struggle uh, while at the same time. So that's why I went hiking, right, and didn't feel guilty about it during the middle of this because it's it's nothing new for me and my work and it's it's just ongoing the cameras are new and they'll go at the same time i think that this is a moment you know it is a moment that we could seize onto where we have the attention uh and and hopefully can can create some systemic ongoing change uh and transformation um as far as the compassionate lawyering I, I think that it's it's not just the right thing to do morally. It's best for our clients to be able to, whether we're consultants or attorneys or whatever it may be, even in policy work, if you're at all working with individuals, to be able to understand what happens in prison, to understand post you know conviction relief, to understand sentencing mitigation thoroughly. I think that's a, a incredible uh, responsibility that all attorneys should have. And I've found that some lawyers or attorneys uh, are phenomenal at understanding case law, but they don't have a clue on what happens when, when it comes to creating the best uh, you know, pre-sentence report, if it's the federal system or in some states, possible to, to paint a picture of the client as holistically as can be for, for everyone from the judge to the prosecutor to the jury etc. And that's something that I, I found uh, helped immensely in my own federal criminal defense was working hand in hand with my attorney to be able to show whether it was going to be a judge, jury, or just the prosecutor, uh, the full picture of my background to, to share about the trauma that I endured, to share about all of that stuff. Uh, and I ended up, I, I didn't cooperate in my case. I ended up getting a guideline sentence in a plea eventually and but i got the very low end and the judge took into factor uh all of what we presented to the court and i don't know that every lawyer would have done as thorough 
of a job of presenting the the client as a human being and not only looking at the legal aspects. And finally, it reminds me of that we have the title, um, you know, if we're if we're attorneys or when we were when we will be attorneys of both attorney at law and counselor. And I don't expect us to be, we're not licensed mental health counselors, so to speak, but we are supposed to counsel our clients on all the ramifications of our decisions and their decisions. And that's what, something I try to bring to my daily work, uh, whether it's, it involves law, my students or otherwise, is that it's not just what's the case law on this and can I get them to 22 months from 23 months it's uh, counseling on all of the, the factors involved and all of the um, consequences, including, uh, you know, for me, I, I, when I got clearance to, to be an intern in the White House during law school, I had to have top secret eligible uh, national security position clearance. And then I tried to rent an apartment in Washington, D.C. And I was turned down because I had a criminal record. Uh, I had to tell the White House, I'm sorry, I'd love to come, but I can't get past Bobby, the landlord, uh, due to my criminal records. So uh, anyway, that's just something that I, I would have loved for my attorney to understand uh, yeah. things like that in the process. But he did a great job nonetheless. And uh, it's it's really, I've really enjoyed this. I do a ton of interviews and, and podcasts and stuff like that. And I really want to just thank the other guests because I really, really enjoyed being on here with you all. And I hope we, we remain connected after. Thank you. Being here. Yeah, thank you. Um, all of your information will be in the show notes after, and I'll be, um, I'll be sending you all uh, um, links uh, to the show and to the notes and everything as soon as it, um, as soon as it goes live. I actually forgot to share, to share mine. Sorry. It's uh <laughs> www.commerce.wa.gov forward slash reentry, one word. And uh, email is Christopher.Poulos, P O U L O S, at commerce.wa.gov. Thank, thanks, Chris. And um, just, I want to end with um, what a, um, a deep and lasting impression that I know this is going to have on me uh, because we work with um, people who've been. Uh, prosecuted or being prosecuted for white collar crimes. And I have conversations with lawyers all the time, maybe even daily. And we have a white collar support group that meets on uh, Mondays. And we've been doing it for four years now on, uh, on Zoom, or uh, we used to be on its predecessor. And um, one of the things that um, we, uh, we expressed to the lawyers is that um, if I were going for a job, if I were, if I committed a crime three or four or five years ago and I were going for a job, um, the question I would ask the, the person who's applying for the job is, all right, so what have you done in the last four or five years? And it seems that um, people don't know when they're facing these things that what you do right now counts. You know, what, what you're doing right now in terms of service, how you are reaching out for help to others, how you are interacting with the world right now counts. And you should be able to document all of that. And if one of those things is going to a support group um, and, and um, working on yourself and your own self-improvement, not only should you do it, but you should do it in a way that it can be documented so that someone can, can write um, uh, recommendation letters for you and things like that. So uh, 
thank you all. Um, and I trust that um, you'll take calls from anyone who's watching this. And, uh, and thank you all for being here. And um, it's a wonderful, wonderful podcast. So thank you all and have, have a good night. Thanks, Thanks Good night, everybody. Night. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.